Welcome to Warm Regards, Conversations from the Frontline of Climate Change. I'm Ramesh Longani, an Associate Professor of Biology at Doan University in Nebraska. Joining me this week is Dr. Sarah Myrie, a Research Associate at the University of Washington and founder of the Rowan Institute, a climate leadership think tank. Well, Sarah, so obviously the big news right now is Hurricane Florence and the communities that are dealing with uh, it and its aftermath. Um, there are a lot of pay- people who are facing challenges, um, whether it's flooding or access to resources, um, you know, just trying to get back home. Uh, there are also some amazing volunteers that are helping those in need. And if you want to help, we're going to put a link to the Red Cross in the episode description so that you can donate and help. Um, and so the question that often comes up when storms like this hit is whether or not climate change are making is making these storms worse. And a recent AP piece about this exact question came out the other day. And the AP piece seemed to conclude after talking with some climatologists that, in fact, climate change was contributing to the severity of this storm. Um, but I'm not a climatologist. So I'm sort of going to pass the responsibility off to you, Sarah. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this idea about uh, climate change and its impact on these storms. Uh, Lowell, I'm definitely not a climatologist either, but I guess I can try to fill in and speak as a an earth scientist thinking about these things. Um, just to start, uh, this is an ongoing slow rolling tragedy and 32 people have died thus far as a result of this storm. The coastal cities and historic cities of Charleston and Wilmington have been particularly uh, hard hit. Um, so as an earth scientist, when you think about the ongoing emergencies and disasters, the the fires in the Pacific Northwest, um, and now hurricane season with Hurricane Florence, um, you're thinking about it as an expression of the amplification of climate impacts. And so we we um, we know this basic earth um, this link between hurricanes and climate change from a basic information that the 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 heat in the Earth system it derives storm because storms are driven by this energy. So as we add energy into the atmosphere from heat trapping gases, we're adding energy to these storm systems. The questions then result um, from that around will hurricane frequency um, increase or will hurricane intensity increase? And so we try to start parsing our hypotheses about how this extra heat and extra energy in the atmosphere will manifest uh, so these are interesting questions, and we should figure them out. But fundamentally, as an earth scientist, like I really don't care about these <laughs> questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't mean that in like a in a dismissive way. I mean it as in it's it's a second order problem of climate change because we we already know what's happening to the atmosphere from our measurements of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and from our measurements of the carbon isotopic composition of the atmosphere, which reflects the addition of all these fossil fuel-derived um, greenhouse gases. So I, I don't really care. And the problem is, is that this question of like, is it amplified or isn't, is it, isn't it amplified? Is it more rainy? Is it not more rainy? Is it bigger? Is it slower? Like all this stuff gets, like it takes up, all of the oxygen in the media space around following these these hurricanes and these events. And it's usually used as a straw man argument in place of essentially holding space around is is climate change or is climate change not happening? Do we right. see or do we not see impacts? So it ends up being a really problematic media frame on what these hurricanes are, why why they're so interesting and why we care about them. But I I think 
there, there are real problems in the way that we cover and talk about hurricanes and climate change. Right. And I, I think these sorts of that sort of framing of the discussion oftentimes leads the general public when they hear that on their local news. You know, it's really easy to then cherry pick. But there was a stronger storm back in 19 whatever, or yeah. there was a weaker storm back in 20 whatever. Yeah. And so uh, I think it gives the public a false dichotomy of is, you know, I think the public oftentimes gets uh, just because of the way the discussion is framed is climate change causing hurricanes, which actually isn't the question at all. And so all of that gets mixed around together into a somewhat inarticulate and sometimes confused discussion. Right. And I think like some people are just confused about how do we talk about this stuff? There's an honest lack of um, a clear pathway to talk about this. And then I think there's other people that are essentially bad actors that are inserting skepticism and um, uh, denialism essentially into the public sphere in order to downplay the need to act on, on climate impacts. The reason why this is happening is also complex. Um, and people will hear things like, oh, it, this, this storm was, you know, 12%, you know, more intense because of um, anthropogenic climate change. And people are like, well, 12%, okay, you know, and that's not actually a sufficient sort of frame into the scale and nature of this planetary scale uh, experiment that we are underway because, you know, it's not just about tropical storms, but it's about sea level rise and Arctic ice and ocean acidification and deoxygenation and, you know, the reorganization of um, terrestrial environments. Like there's a lot of other stuff on the table um, to talk about in, in uh, the context of, of climate impacts. Right, right. And, you know, when we think about, you know, you brought up the idea of, you know, it's 12% more intense and, you know, they show these really powerful big images of, you know, the storms. Um, you know, I, again, I think the public gets, a re you know, the public doesn't necessarily know how to, how to process all those images, right? You see these massive images on a variety of scales, uh, you know, whether it's on the ground or from the air or, you know, flooding or from space. And again, it's, it's I think it's tough for the public to, to understand how to put those pieces together. And so, you know, thinking about those images, especially the ones that show the size of Florence, um, is a really great lead into uh, today's guest, Dr. Joe Mascaro. Uh, Dr. Mascaro is a forest ecologist and is director of academic programs at Planet Labs. Planet Labs is an aerospace company that manufactures and operates the largest constellation of satellites in the sky right now. That's I know that's the wrong way to describe it. Uh, there's about 150 <laughs> up there right now. So, uh, Joe, uh, welcome. And and in full disclosure, Joe is a very good friend of mine. He was actually uh, the best man at my wedding. And so, but as we think about um, climate change, I thought he would be a great person to bring in thinking about images and, and these sort of, um, and satellites. So Joe, welcome to Warm Regards. Thanks, Ramesh and Sarah both. It's really nice to talk with you guys today. Really excited to be here. Uh, so Joe, why don't you start by telling us sort of how, so I said you're a forest ecologist. Why don't you tell us how a forest ecologist ended up working at a satellite company? I know, I know, right? I'm working on I'm working on space ecologist as my new moniker. I've just got to uh, 
I've got to get some build some support for that. So, um, you know, I've been basically measuring trees in various ways my entire career. So um, I, I started out mostly working on forest biogeochemistry and looking at uh, actually forests in Hawaii um, that are dominated by introduced species, forests we call novel forests, and comparing the the function of those forests, including their productivity, their nutrient cycling with the native forests that are being replaced essentially wholesale in the Hawaiian islands. And there I met a, a group of ecologists that do airborne ecology. So this was uh, the, a lab run by Greg Asner. He's at the Carnegie Institution for Science. And I kind of transitioned into a postdoc where I was, I was for the first time really working with remote sensing data full time. And it totally blew my mind, the ability to scale fundamental ecological questions like what is the carbon flux of a forest with the atmosphere um, yeah. and take that question totally outside of a field plot right and put it into a national scale or you know where you're, you're operating millions of hectare type of scale um and so what's, then, what can you give our audience uh, what is a hectare like could you give them a sense of what that is Ooh, ooh, good quiz because my metric versus English <laughs> skills are not so great. I think it's uh, like uh, 2.5 acres, roughly. Do either of okay. you guys know? Oh, no. Um, we'll we'll no, double no. that. It's, but, 100, but... it's 100 meters on a side. So it's a manageable chunk of land. Okay. Um, okay. And yeah. so, for example, when I was working with Greg, we, we developed along uh, in that project, we developed one of the first national maps of forest carbon stocks. And it was for Peru. And I believe Peru's on the order of uh, uh, 1.5 million square kilometers. So something like, oh gosh, now I don't remember. I, I want to say it's 150 million hectares, something on that order. <laughs> There's a lot Plus, of forest down there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you did this. So you, so you worked in these forests, uh, collecting this information about carbon and, 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 through those postdocing experiences, you found yourself um, now working at Planet Labs. Yeah, you you can think of me as counting trees at, at three different spatial scales, right? Like I started counting trees in the field, where you literally walk around and measure them by hand, then moving up to to doing it from the air, and then finally from space. So, yeah, Planet, as you said, operates the largest constellation of of satellites. The next largest uh, constellation is the Iridium Global Communications Network. Um, but we have about 150 satellites in space right now, and the majority of those are small CubeSats, we call them. They're about the size of a shoebox, and those are orbiting the Earth in such a way where they're, you can think of them almost like a strand of pearls wrapped around the Earth from one pole to the next. And so as the Earth is rotating underneath, we collect strips and strips of imagery. It's almost like mowing your lawn or driving a Zamboni. And then those strips are ideally flush uh, and that way, we're able to capture the whole land surface of the Earth over a 24-hour period. So we collect something like 1.3 million individual images. Um, each image is approximately 10 by 20 kilometers. And the pixel resolution of the individual images is 3.7 meters. So that means you can, you can see a house or building. Um, you can resolve cars on the freeway. Um, but you can't see individual people. So this is mostly... Uh, for purposes of of land imaging, and it has many applications throughout agriculture, resource monitoring, and the sciences, naturally. Joe, so I, listening to this, like my mind, the the scale of the data management you guys are doing, um, it, it actually makes me feel ill. Like, <laughs> holy moly. And it reminds me of some of like the disorientation that I felt, you know, I, I have a background in biology. 
in the beginning of my career in science, biology was going through this massive like transition from a data poor to a really data rich field in the the rapid transfer to genomes that were sequenced. And all of a sudden, biology was this like a code that could be unraveled. And it was um, a massive breakthrough in this data management side of biology. But like we are in in my undergrad, like we didn't even have a critical skill set to think about a data rich future for biology. Like we were just beginning to think about what kind of questions can be approached, brand new kinds of questions. And I, I, I wonder like, you're, you've gone through this progression from maybe maybe more data poor approach to now like uh, like the the most data ever like the daily surveys of the surface of the earth. How have you transited at intellectually from a data poor to a data rich framework? Do you think about these questions in a new way now? I I think about them all the time, Sarah, and it's it is staggering. And of course, Earth imaging is not the only scientifically related data repository that's going through this type of change, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to look at the the whole industry and, and look at three trends. One is the massive increase in data. And in earth imaging, it's not just from planet. The, there's a large government-sponsored earth observation fleet of sensors, including like the, the European Space Agency Sentinel program, the USGS Landsat program, where we're seeing increasing deployments of satellites. So the sheer volume of data is increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, there's a simultaneous increase in the ability to do storage and compute with large volumes of data. So I don't, I don't, I don't have the number right in front of me. I think Planet's daily take is something like six terabytes a day. It's somewhere between six and 10 terabytes a day. It's a huge wow. amount of data. Wow. More than 300 million square kilometers each day, which is more than twice the land surface of the earth. And so... Jeez. Yeah, so we have a we have a non-trivial Google cloud storage bill. I'll put put it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. like lots of users, yeah. we we rely on cloud storage, and this was simply not something that existed uh, twenty years ago. And even today, a lot of the government data is still stored in basically basements filled with tape archives and robots moving around. So if you request a particular image from Landsat, for example, and it hasn't been requested recently, mm-hmm. literally you might have to move a little robot and go and go pull the data archive. Um, and so, you know, that, that the, the fact that Google, Amazon, other companies are investing in this sort of large storage and compute allows you to do a couple things. It increases your storage ability, but because of the storage and compute are co-located, physically co-located, it means that you can process things much more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So this is enabled, for instance, uh, there's a very popular tool, tool called Google Earth Engine, not to be confused, confused with Google Earth, but this is like being able to access government-sponsored Earth observation data and actually run processing on it with one mouse click where the user never actually touches the data. So what, so, is, what do you mean run processing on it? So for, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so imagine you take something like the Landsat 8 record, which I think, I think Landsat, was deployed, Landsat 8 was deployed somewhere around, I don't have it in front of me, 2009, 2010. So, and Landsat is a satellite that's floating around up there, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, well, not exactly floating, right? But at, at orbital... <laughs> right. It's orbiting um, up there, yeah. Yeah, so NASA's, uh, Landsat is part of, the, of what NASA calls the, the, the A-train. This is like the suite of NASA 
uh, operated um, Earth observation satellites. It includes other satellites like Aqua and Terra that have other focuses. But Landsat ha- as a program has been running since the early 70s um, with Landsat 1. And we've now accumulated, really as a society, what is a public resource of imaging data over the past 40 to 50 years. And in the past, you would never be able to process all of it at once. There just simply weren't computers big enough to crunch the data. And through something like Google Earth Engine, a user can do something like, so if you analyze the Landsat data, a problem for you right away is clouds. Landsat doesn't see through the clouds. And something like 40, 50% of the Earth is cloud covered at any given time. So if you care about how agriculture fields are changing, how glaciers are changing, you have to filter out the clouds. And you can now pull the whole Landsat 8 record and quite literally run an algorithm on every pixel that basically goes through the stack and tries to find you know, a pixel that looks less cloudy, basically, or has a low probability of being cloud covered. Mm-hmm. And then you can crunch all that data into, a, into an output, and it might be a mosaic of the earth that's totally cloud free. Wow. That's awesome. And I'm, what I'm saying is that the, the, the major change is now somebody with a Chromebook or uh, an iPad potentially in a place like Bangladesh could essentially crunch the whole data set through one click. That's so rad. It's amazing. Yeah. So do you, do you feel like we're all babies trying to um, <laughs> <laughs> like navigate a, a brand new world of data density in a in a like a geopolitical landscape that's been completely unaccountable for like that that actual landscape i mean thinking about um you know physical commitments to carbon sequestration the kinds of decisions you know geopolitical entities are gonna are gonna have to demonstrate uh, as we move towards carbon neutrality yeah yeah actually um i think you're seeing i think you're gonna see a lot of changes i mean the so something like carbon accounting is a great example mm-hmm. because it's a complicated uh, scientific assessment that you want to do everywhere and you want to do it rigorously everywhere so that if somebody in Peru versus somebody in Bangladesh deforests a particular parcel of land, you can actually discriminate between the, the carbon content of the vegetation that that's being removed or burned. And that means looking at every pixel and understanding something about the physical structure of the forest at every pixel. And for that, you need lots of different types of remote sensing assets. So Joe, one of the pieces that I think about with the emergence of this technology is the geopolitical consequences for having this kind of data availability and the, the scale and the frequency of the data. Um, how do you guys think about this and the, the kind of downstream political consequences that will come from satellite imaging at this frequency? Yeah, that's a great question, Sarah. I think that, first of all, we, we believe that greater transparency is a net benefit. Um, and when you look at the Dove imagery, the CubeSat imagery, you know, a reminder, this is pixels are 3.7 meters on a side. So we can't see individual people. This is not a data set that really comes anywhere close to violating, say, somebody's personal privacy. Um, It's just not sharp enough to do that. It's much more applicable for larger scale resource monitoring. Um, But I think your question is quite relevant when you look at 
the whole industry, uh, not only of remote sensing, but this just huge increase in these types of data feeds from different types of disaggregated sensors. I don't think there's any question that we're increasingly living in an age where there is uh, just a greater uh, ability to capture the history of what happened, whether it's on the Earth's surface, whether it's on an agricultural field. Um, and there are certainly potentially nefarious outcomes to that. Um, one that's been pointed out among, say, some of the uh, collaborators we work with on deforestation is that, you know, if you, if you find where carbon stocks in tropical, tropical forests are high uh, because you're concerned about the carbon emissions that cause climate change, mm -hmm. you're also making a map of where the big trees are, which right. is something that might be of interest to, say, somebody doing a selective logging operation. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think there's any question. I, I also think that, you know, this is a, a, an area that we'll have to figure out as a community where we're collectively being good stewards of our planet. Um, and planet was quite literally founded to use space to help life on Earth. And so we're just really eager to work with our users and partners, whether they be scientists or customers, to make sure that this data set is leveraged in a positive way. So, Joe, thinking about uh, using images to help our planet and help our planetary life, um, how, and you touched on this a little bit, but how could these sorts of images be used that the images that are generated by planet be used to help us understand climate change? Yeah. You know, I am so excited about this. So my job at planet, the funnest part of my job is interacting with actual researchers, professors, graduate students, undergrads. I self-identify still as a scientist, even though I happen to work in the private sector. So, you know, when I go out and visit a university, that's my bread and butter. I feel like right at home. And um, let me just give you one example. Um, so uh, there's a woman named Sarah Cooley who's uh, wrapping up her graduate degree at Brown University, and she's a hydrologist. Um, and she's really interested in hydrological dynamics at high latitudes. And because of the way the planet system works, we actually get more and more images as you go higher and higher in latitude. And so in places like Alaska and Canada, Sarah can analyze hundreds of thousands of lakes. Um, and she can do it on a daily basis. And, and I cannot impress upon you enough how, first of all, enormous that data set is, but how somebody like Sarah has the skill set to go and tackle it with, you know, basically MATLAB code, basically go <laughs> say, find all those lakes and build up a lake database. And then I want to look at, at each lake and how they behave over, say, an entire growing season. And this allows her to understand how things like permafrost and other types of impermeable surfaces um, or sediments in this part of the world influence the local hydrology. So through this exercise, she could, for example, years down the road with additional work, I think, she could be able to detect things like changes to surface hydrological uh, dynamics caused by loss of permafrost due to climate change or, right. you know, other types of changes like that. And this type of analysis before planet would not have been possible. Um, she's really, she's really the, she's a, a leader in this field, but the data set too is, is sort of carving a new path of, I think, novel science that we can do. You know, one of the things I think about all the time is in science, we, you know, we're pushing the boundary to try to test new hypotheses and break these kind of empirical bar barriers around, you know, 
aligning observations to some empirical theory or physical theory or some some equation that we're testing. Um, that's all well and good, but man, we don't know what's out there. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like we don't actually even know. Like the, the, that's why this this kind of technology, the democratization of this kind of technology, it's just phenomenal, right? Because it it changes our awareness of how data poor our ideas about the world have have been. Um, not that we're off, but we have work to do too. Um, right. And I, so it's like this really like spectacular capacity to kind of shift what science can what what kind of questions we as scientists can can and can cannot answer you know what is that publishable unit of inquiry and discovery that then you know e- each individual scientist is like iteratively growing their career on those publishable units any any thought about like how that publishable unit is going to explode using the the scale of these these kinds of tools oh yeah i think i mean so Here's one way I think about it. When you look at a discipline like ecology or hydrology, geology, generally speaking, subject matter experts graduating are going to have skills, including fieldwork and ability to go and like look at a particular field site, mm-hmm. learn about some of its diagnostic characteristics. With remote sensing, you have the opportunity to make the whole planet your area of focus. And of course, there are plenty of things we still cannot do from space. Um, Some things we'll never be able to do from space just because the physics of the atmosphere make it impossible. But increasingly, we are are looking at the planet and the subsystems of the different ecological or or scientific domains of the various um, parts of our ecosphere. And we're able to look at them all at once. And I I just think that is um, incredible and is a place that we were nowhere close to that. Um, a couple of decades ago, and it is really transformative. So Joe, not knowing anything about how these satellites work. um, So a lot of people, you know, they're just hanging in the air. They're just hanging in the air, right? Floating, floating, right. (laughs) Um, A lot of people see, you know, thinking about climate change, a lot of people see, you know, time-lapse photos or time-lapse video of a glacier melting or, you know, um, and, and I feel like, the opportunity here with with Planet Labs, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to sort of see those processes at a scale that we had that previously we couldn't really get at. And do you think that sort of imagery or that sort of you know you talked about taking how many images per day, sort of time lapsing these images? Do you think that would be more impactful for getting people to understand the planetary scale of climate change? Do you think that could be used to motivate action on 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 climate change? Definitely. So I think you guys are probably familiar with this concept uh, from the early days of the space age called the overview effect, which is... I am not. This this is a great concept. It's the idea that you're... If if you go to space, or another way to do it since we all don't get to go to space is to look at images from space, especially things like the whole sunlit disk of the Earth um, in a photograph, you know, this iconic Apollo photograph called Earthrise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you see our planet from space, it changes your psychology. Um, things like geopolitical borders, some of them are observable from space, but most of them are not. So political boundaries tend to fall away, and you tend to have a much more intimate and personal connection with the ecosystems on the planet. And 
I will say that working at an aerospace company where it is my job and the job of many other people here to quite literally look at those images every day, um, it does change your psychology. Something as simple as the construction of a port off of, say, an ocean coastline in, in Brazil has an immediate geomorphological effect on the, the sandbars and kind of the shapes of the beaches around. And that is something you stack up a daily imaging feed and you can see that there's a construction event by humans and there's an immediate geomorphological and ecological response to that on the planet's surface. And that's just one tiny example. There, there are you know, thousands and millions of these examples and many, many yet to be discovered. It does have limits. So Planet is an imaging company we collect basically imagery in the visible and near-infrared portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. So there are things we don't see. We don't, Planet doesn't take assessments of, for example, the carbon dioxide concentration in the, in the atmosphere of the Earth. But that is something we can also do in you know, other Earth observation sensors like the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, which is specifically designed for that purpose, increasingly do those things too. So what you're saying is that you sit in front of your machine and sing David Bowie's Ground Control to Major Tom? <laughs> All Ground day. control to like, Major Tom is popular over here. Yeah, there's lots uh, of ennui. Yeah, we're also big fans <laughs> of Starman. <laughs> I mean, you guys must sit around at the end of the day and be like, "Holy moly, no one knows what this looks like, except for this little, this little piece of data that we that we got to see today in the afternoon." Just yesterday, I was looking at some high-res photos we have from our other one of our other constellations. These are called the SkySats, so they're even sharper images, less than a meter per pixel. Jeez, and I was wow. looking at images of the calving face of the, I'm going to butcher this name, it's the Jakobshavn Glacier, which is in West Greenland. It's one of the one of the fastest flowing ice streams in the world. I have been told by cryosphere people that this thing can flow at like 50 meters per day. They said what you the can just wow. you can sit on a rock and like eat lunch and watch it go by. They said, Ooh. and I was looking at images separated by a couple of days where I can see icebergs the size of the Chrysler Building one day, and then the next day they've like inverted, like the the part that was the top has flipped over, so that's under the water now, and you can see like the the underbelly of these of these icebergs, and that that's like typical. That's that's what we do before coffee here. <laughs> wow, that is quite the start to the day, man. <laughs> well, uh, Ramesh and I are going back and forth about a particular question we want to ask you, which is um, basically like, what's the coolest thing that you have seen? Do you have any recollections that like along this line uh, that I stand can, out in your career? I can tell you the, the, the moment where I was the most surprised by our imagery uh, was in the lab of a, a group of wildlife biologists at the University of Glasgow. I was there a couple of months ago. I was on my way to the, the Google Earth Engine meeting, and, and they were kind enough to bring me up to Glasgow and to give a talk. And they work on many different wildlife applications uh, throughout the world, but they one of their particular areas of focus is on wildebeest in, in Tanzania. And so we were we were having this back and forth about whether certain satellites you could you know could you actually see the individual animals and and with some satellites you can they're they're big enough that you can you can see them you know you can't pick one out of a lineup like you can't tell Mo from from Bruce I don't know what the names of the wildebeest are but um, Larry Curly but you could there's always a Larry there's always a Larry Mm -hmm. (laughs) but with uh, with the Dove constellation 
at 3.7 meters per pixel, definitely not. These, these animals are too small to, to, to show up as a pixel of these, from these CubeSat images. But I said, well, maybe we should see if we can, we can see the effects of their grazing. And so we looked at the, the collar data, like collar tracking data that this lab has. And sure enough, we went to the collar locations and we looked at a stack of planted images. It was about six images over a seven-day period where as though it was as though you were mowing your lawn. I mean, it's unambiguous. I'll send you guys the a, wow. a yeah. or the gif. You can watch this line every single day, like walk its way across Tanzania. And wow. my, my jaw fell to the floor. That was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. That's that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. So, so Joe, uh, I sort of have two questions for you. One sort of clarifying question. So you keep using this word constellation, but I think our listeners generally, you know, you think about constellations, you think about Orion's belt. So what does that, what does that word constellation mean in, in sort of the context of what you do? So why don't you answer that and I'll, I'll ask the next question. Yeah, yeah. Great question, Ramesh. So, you know, there are lots of different ways to operate satellites. Um, when I say constellation, I merely mean a group of satellites that are all more or less doing the same thing. So our Dove satellites, these again are the ones that are about the size of a shoebox. You can picture them in your mind wrapped around the earth, like I said, like a strand of pearls or like in a hula hoop. So imagine a single orbit, you draw a line around it. There's about 100 spacecraft in that one orbit, and they're moving at about nine kilometers per second. They're, they're almost exactly one minute behind each other. So if you were if you could somehow just, uh, you know, as an avatar, just float in that orbit, every minute you'd see one of our satellites fly by. Wow. Um, okay. There are many other constellations increasingly uh, appearing in the aerospace industry for other types of purposes. So some other constellations that people would be familiar with, there's quite an interest in uh, broadband internet constellations. There's There's two large projects that are in various stages of, of completion, one led by SpaceX and the other led by uh, OneWeb. And the idea there would be to put up thousands of satellites that would allow for um, broadband internet access basically at any point on the Earth's surface. And, Whoa. Yeah. The, these are very complicated uh, configurations. And, but the interesting and the fun part is, you know, with a constellation approach, you can do lots of interesting stuff. So, you know, we, we often play around with ideas of planet, like what other types of science we might be able to do if we configure the constellation or a future constellation in a slightly different way. So, Joe, that actually leads right into my next question. So sort of what sort of images do you, do you or planet sort of want to get um, but can't get right now? And and why why not? I mean, is there an inter interstellar uh, traffic jam up there or, <laughs> um, or is it just technology limited? You know, what's the limitation and what do you guys really want to get? Uh, good question. So, you know, I would say on the technical side of things, we're, we're interested in exploring other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So when it comes to earth imagery, um, in the visible portion of the spectrum, you know, you see the same things you see with the human eye. In other parts of the spectrum, um, things like the near-infrared or the thermal-infrared, the shortwave-infrared, you can see other features of ecosystems and places. And so that's something we're always kicking around here. What other types of, of spectral configurations might we fly in the future? And in terms of just imagery we're getting you know, today where we'd like to get more of, I think um, at least one thing we're, we're interested in exploring, we're, we have a few partnerships um, in these areas uh, 
is the oceans. So uh, not long ago, the, you know, the constellation was designed really for for land imaging purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just kicked off a project a couple of months ago with Paul Allen Philanthropies and the University of Queensland, the University of Hawaii, and Carnegie Institution. And this one is entirely focused on coral reef monitoring. And this is really exciting. It's been tricky for us. We had to innovate some new ways to analyze our data to make sure it was appropriate for ocean work. Um, but once we got that working, and a lot of that was led by these university partnerships, we've been able to, to actually look at, at the coral reefs of the world. And we, our hope is that we haven't proven this yet, but our hope is that we'll be able to see things like coral bleaching, the sort of damage that uh, is caused to coral reefs when ocean temperatures increase. And if we can see something like that, that means we could monitor it every day, right? And there are actually mitigation methods for coral bleaching. I, I'm not up to speed on them, but in principle, when you have a bleaching event taking place, it might last a few weeks. And right. there are actually, you can actually go into the water and try to change the pH of the water in such a way that could help mitigate the damage from a bleaching event. So if you know when and where those are happening in near real time, that means you could improve the efficiency of that mitigation and, and, you know, really like save some reefs. And I think that's totally amazing. Yeah. So thinking about the the capacity to respond in real time um, and then shifting back to this piece around like a tool can be used for good and bad purposes. Um, and I want to, th- I'm just curious about how you guys think about quantifying essentially bad actors in these spaces and, being able to demonstrate like not only the footprint of the the land surface that's dominated by oil and gas extraction, but then the footprint of the earth that is being degraded and eroded because of the impacts of climate change. Do you think about the future of data products like that and and how there's a, a certain issue with like the moral attention of us focusing on these very powerful, very large corporations and their their physical consequences. Yeah, Sarah. Wow, it's. Um, I think we're still a few years away from the kind of broad scale observation that you're talking about because I think it requires it requires a lot of domain experts having mm-hmm. access and having really the space and time to work with that access to to generate the type of what I would consider insights or these other information feeds. So we talked about carbon before. Carbon's in, carbon's a good one to work with because most of the science for how you would get estimates of carbon in vegetation from earth imagery data, most of that has been solved. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And so if we could, through improved rigor and just essentially better science on the existing data, I think we could start to view the carbon flux of the earth's vegetation in a, in a near real-time way. So yeah, imagine a few years out, yeah. you have a dashboard where you can actually see which countries and states have sources and sinks of carbon with the atmosphere associated wow. with their vegetation. Yeah, yeah. That'd, be, that'd be awesome. Yeah, and, and you can imagine, so in Inside Planet, one of the ways we think about this is internalizing an externality. Like we all learned carbon emissions from deforestation are an externality. If you're the company that's cutting down the trees, you get an economic benefit either from the lumber or the cattle pasture that you're able to deploy after you cut the trees down. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us on earth, the other 7 billion of us are the ones that incur the consequences of that carbon going into the atmosphere. Well, 
in a, I think in, I think it's within the horizon. I, I think we can see the horizon where you would be able in principle to go to a dashboard. It's got rigorous scientific backing. So there's, you know, multiple experts that have bought into the content that's generated from it. Mm-hmm. And it would be something that would show you where those sources and sinks of carbon are off the vegetation. And I think that that and I think you could take that model and try to scale it to other types of applications. Think about the same thing for ice, same thing for, you know, sea level rise. Right. Like those are the types of things where I think increasingly as a civilization, we need a common dashboard or a common venue to look at those and discuss, you know, where to put our efforts for adaptation or mitigation or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Oh, massive downstream. It's just massive downstream consequences and implications for a toolkit like that, that really upholds the scale of physical commitments at each individual actor's level. So really phenomenal um, future tool sets. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, I know this might be a little bit of a left turn, but I think that's a great place for us to move into sort of the closing segment of our show. That's the Ask Us Anything I guess the AMA, but ask us anything part of the show. Um, and this question comes directly from Twitter from Nancy Hone. Uh, and she tweeted, um, and, and Joe, because you're our guest and also our resident satellite expert, uh, we are just <laughs> going to defer to you. Um, so she tweeted. I think you're here. Yeah. An ISAT 2 video uh, shared satellites, uh, basically mo- monitoring up to the 88th degree latitude. And uh, she asked, can you explain why polar orbiting satellites aren't able to orbit in the 89th or 90th degree latitude? Coriolis effect? So feel free to... There you go, Joe. Have fun with that one. Yeah. And I have to confess right away that this was a tough question. And I I had a little bit of a pre-read. So I did talk to real aerospace experts. And here I I will now give you my, my naive understanding. So... Um, as a tropical ecologist, I'm not a I'm not an aerospace expert, but here's what I've learned in digging around this question. In principle, you can so you can fly at the 90th, uh, essentially 90 degrees, a direct polar orbit. Um, and there there is at least one mission, a gravity mission that that flew in that orbit. Where you see most Earth observation sensors is an inclination a few degrees away from that, and that gets us into uh, sun synchronous orbit. This orbit is really ideal for Earth imaging for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is in in this orbit, you tend to revisit the same place on Earth at the same local time of day. Now, that means that the illumination conditions on the Earth are stable. So mm, okay. your shadows will move a little bit according to the seasons, but they won't change so much from, say, Monday to Thursday. And this helps you have the ability to analyze like a dense time series of information of a kind of a stack of imagery. Um, and the other reason is that uh, also due to the solar environment at that orbit, it's easier to maintain power management on the spacecraft. Um, and power management on spacecraft is super important. So not everybody, but generally you're talking about the interaction between some solar panels and some batteries. And right. you really want to maintain the health of those power systems. Otherwise you're, you're kaput. <laughs> Is that a technical term, kaput? Yeah, I think that is a technical term. <laughs> awesome. We have our uh, our answer sourced. Thank you. Um, I think this is a, a great place to close our show. We've gone from straw man arguments and Hurricane Florence 
to um, going uh, batteries and satellites going kaput with a lot of really amazing science in between. So, Joe, thank you so much. And thank you to Planet Labs for, for coming on the show today. Thank you, guys. I've had a great time. I learned a lot. And uh, I especially enjoy expanding my own aerospace insider knowledge when I get to talk to mission control. So the more questions that come in like that, the better. Oh, my God. Mission control. That just gives me chills. (laughs) Yeah, they're the coolest. They're they're literally right across the room from me right now. Yeah, I think I want to be a space ecologist now. I'm done with this, like, like walking the Earth service, looking at things. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, I, I want to close the show today with just a short reflection, which is that you were talking about um, measuring and investigating the Earth's surface. And we're talking about um, hurricanes that have been amplified by um, the impacts of climate warming. And um, these are these are these iterative and granular conversations about the, the forefront of science and, and understanding how phenomena are, are happening in real time. And as we have these conversations, I think it's really important for all of us to remain grounded in the fact that these are real people's lives being impacted. And we know empirically that um, extreme events like hurricanes hit the poorest amongst us, um, particularly minority communities. So it's great to talk about technology. And um, and yet, I think all of us doing this work, we hold a, a really important sort of space and presence for the fact that these are real people, these are real places, these are real environments that, um, that are meaningful. So with that, um, I just want to thank Again, Joe Mascaro and Planet Labs, as well as my co-host Ramesh, and uh, look forward to talking with our listeners soon. This is Warm Regards. 